Well, this morning, like we've been saying through the service, we're going to be talking about community. I'm going to be continuing the series Reunion Blues as we look to Nehemiah chapter 7 this morning to see what it shows us about this important topic about community. And in God's providential timing, this isn't really a new topic for many of us this morning. If you have been following along with us in the sermon series in 1 Peter, we looked at hospitality, uh, we looked at welcome, we looked at the church as our real family. And so by this point in time, if you've been following along with us in some of those sermon series, uh, but even if you haven't, even in the liturgy this morning, our hearts have been warmed up to this idea that the church is to be a community. It's an idea that we are, are familiar with in the Christian tradition, that the church is to live out in practice what we confess it to be in the Apostles' Creed. We are to be in real life the communion of saints. And so I want to build on that this morning as we look to community, because community is part of what I've been calling reunion blues, this tendency to revert to old habits or to have increased conflict with the people that you're around when you're re-entering after a time away. And again, that's the context culturally where we are at, trying to re-enter after our time of quarantine and in the midst of this pandemic. When you've been away for a while, I'm sure that many of you can attest to this in your life, it's easy to forget your community, who the people are, and how much they actually mean to you. And then, when you're thrust back together, conflict happens. You've seen this before, I'm sure. Maybe you've seen the movie Sweet Home Alabama. It is sort of the perfect picture of this type of conflict. It's also the main premise of the movie Garden State, if you've seen that. There's an episode of The West Wing that talks about conflict in periods of reentry. And depending on how the trailers show things, it might even be a sub-theme in the upcoming Marvel movie Black Widow. You know this story. After leaving home... Usually to try and make it big, try and have some kind of career move, the main character needs to come back home, back to a culture that they've grown apart from. Maybe they've grown to look down on it. And in this process, they confront their past and they begin to appreciate it again. They begin to remember the people that they really love and really care about. So a crucial part of overcoming the reunion blues is rediscovering who you're with. This morning, God invites us to rediscover our community by reminding us what we have all in common together. We share a common identity, a common purpose, and a common leadership. Those are the three points of the sermon this morning. Common identity, common purpose, common leadership. So let's look now to Nehemiah chapter 7. If you're following along in your Bibles, it'll look a little bit different than what you'll see up here. Nehemiah 7 is a very long passage, and here's how we're going to handle it this morning. We're going to be looking at verses 5 through 73, and this long passage is a role of the people who came back from exile in the first generation of people who were coming back to the land of Israel. And so what we have in Nehemiah chapter 7 is a long record of names 
places and numbers that show everyone who was coming back at that point in time. And so here's how we're going to handle this very long, dense text with a bunch of names. I'm going to read parts of it, and then I'm going to simply summarize the other parts of it uh, so that you can kind of get the flow of the passage. And this isn't to reduce the value of God's Word. We confess that God's Word, all of God's Word, has value to us. So it's not to reduce God's Word. It's also not to reduce the importance of the people who lived through this time. Uh, I'm just hoping that in doing this, it help, it honors this great text in our context well. You can think of it like maybe looking at a very old school yearbook from someone that you were related to, maybe an older uh, relative of yours. Now, for the people in that class, that particular year, that yearbook is massively important. It's a huge honor to be in a yearbook, and they would have found great significance by being in that book. But for you, now, a few generations removed from it, you're probably not going to linger over every single picture, right? You're going to look through the yearbook. You're going to look especially for pictures and names that you might know, people that you might be related to. And then what you're going to do is you're going to peruse the rest of the yearbook. You know how yearbooks tend to be organized. There's going to be a lot of different pages that are organized thematically. And so you might look at the picture of the football team. And then you'll look a little bit more and you'll see some of the club photos, maybe the chess club or the AV club. And then you'll finally look at the class photo. And as you look at the yearbook that way, it helps you to ingest the whole thing, to see its great value for you and also for the people who lived through that. So that is how we're we're going to be treating Nehemiah chapter 7. And, and with that spirit, I invite you to look at what might feel like an obscure text filled with people that we do not know and don't know much about, but you can still see in here God's richness for us today. So please read with me Nehemiah chapter 7. We're going to begin in verse 5. Then my God put it into my heart to assemble the nobles and the officials and the people to be enrolled by genealogy. And I found the book of the genealogy of those who came up at the first, and I found written in it, these were the people of the province who came up out of the captivity of those exiles whom Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, had carried into exile. They returned to Jerusalem and Judah, each to his own town. They came with Zerubbabel, Jeshua, Nehemiah, Azariah, Rehemiah, Nehemani, Mordecai, Bilshan, Mispereth, Bigvi, Nehum, Baanan. And then let me uh, summarize what's going to happen next in the text. Verses 8 through 38 have a list of names of the people who have come back. And these list of names are organized by family and also by location. That's the organizing feature. Who the people uh, belong to in terms of family and where they fit in terms of the location of Israel. Then in verses 39 through 42, we hear about the priests who have come back to serve in the temple. Verses 
43 through 45 covered the Levites, who were uh, the priests' assistants in a lot of the tasks that they had to do in the temple work, the temple sacrifices. Verses 46 through 56 talk about the temple servants, also those who helped out with the tasks of the temple. Verses 57 uh, and the concluding verse of 60 then cover the royal servants as well. So that covers the roles of the people who came back. And then we're going to pick up in verse 61. The following were those who came up from Tel Mela, Tel Harsha, Carib, Adon, and Immer. But they could not prove their father's houses nor their descent, whether they belonged to Israel, the sons of Deliah, the sons of Tobiah, the sons of Nakoda, 642. Also of the priests, the sons of Hobiah, the sons of Hakaz, the sons of Barzillai, who had taken a wife of the daughters of Barzillai, the Gileadite, who, and was called by their name. These sought their registration among those enrolled in the genealogies, but it was not found there, so they were excluded from the priesthood as unclean, meaning that they weren't enabled to serve as priests at that point in time, just that select group of people starting in verse 63. The governor told them that they were to not partake of the most holy food until a priest with Urim and Thummim should arise. The whole assembly together was 42,360, besides their male and female servants, of whom there were 7,337. And they had 245 singers, male and female. Their horses were 736, their mules 245, their camels 435, and their donkeys 6,720. Now, some of the heads of the father's houses gave to the work. The governor gave to the treasury 1,000 derricks of gold, 50 basins, 30 priests' garments, and 500 minas of silver. And some of the heads of fathers' houses gave into the treasury of the work 20,000 derricks of gold and 2,200 minas of silver. And what the rest of the people gave together was 20,000 derricks of gold. 2,000 minas of silver, and 67 priests' garments. So the priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers, the singers, some of the people, the temple servants, and all Israel lived in their towns. Brothers and sisters, thus far in the reading of God's word, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Let's pray. Almighty Father, as we look into this word, uh, may we find uh, a, in it maybe a passage of scripture that's, that's almost like a, a cupboard in the house that hasn't been looked into in a long time. And as we open that cupboard, may we, may, may we find here in your word rich treasures, the most delightful news that we could hear, the news of reconciliation between, between humanity and yourself. Help us to see the gospel in your word and help us to see the good news of Christ's victory for us as a community. Help us to see true things about us and then inspire us by those true things to do what needs to be done in practice for our community. Lord God, attend the preaching of your word with your spirit and illuminate it to our 
uh, edification so that we would be sanctified, that we would be made more close to Christ in your image, Lord Jesus. We pray this in your name. Amen. Well, uh, as, you, as you may have already started to pick up as we looked at the text, me, Nehemiah chapter 7, is a, it's a challenging text, and we might wonder, sort of sitting back, well, what's the point of it? And here's the point. In Nehemiah chapter 7, in this role of the genealogy of the people of Israel, first generation returning from exile, we see that our common identity, our common purpose, and our common leadership act like a glue holding the community together in hard times. But before we go there, I just want to quickly explain what's going on in this passage. Last week, when we last left Nehemiah in chapter 1, he was praying to God for the people, that God would forgive the people of their sins, and specifically that he would then bless Nehemiah's plan to help, because he's heard the news that the walls around Jerusalem are are broken down. And since then, the action that's happened up till now in the text, in chapter 2, Nehemiah got permission from the king to travel back to Jerusalem to help rebuild the walls, and then in chapters Three through six of Nehemiah, he does. The wall is successfully rebuilt. And now Nehemiah, in chapter 7, the very beginning of chapter 7, Nehemiah begins the work of organizing the people together to keep the feast. And to do this, to do this work of organization, he dusts off the rolls from a generation earlier. These that we just read were the people, the very first people to return from the Babylonian exile And they rebuilt the temple. If you were to look in your Bibles in one book back, uh, earlier in the text, the book of Ezra, this would cover the action in chapters 1 through 6. So that's kind of where we're at in in the text, in the Bible. And this list that we read in, in Nehemiah 7, it's almost an exact copy of the list that we have in Ezra chapter 2. And so if we, in 21st century America, think that it might be a little bit dull, we at least need to see that it's very important because God placed this almost exact list in his word twice. So it's worth paying attention to. It tells us this morning about community. Nehemiah 7 shows us our common identity. We are God's people. We're God's people, and we experience God's full blessing. Verse 7, which we read in in the text, it gives us 12 names. These 12 names were the leaders of the people who came back, and you might recognize some of the names, Zerubbabel, Jeshua. Uh, Nehemiah is an older Nehemiah. We don't really know anything about him, but shares the same name as the guy who's writing our book now. These are the 12 leaders of the people who came back. And that number 12 is symbolic. You may remember that there were 12 tribes of Israel who came out of the first exodus in Egypt. And so in writing down 12 names of the people who are now coming back in this second exodus, the people are are reminding themselves that they are the full people of God. They are the full people of God. And this is confirmed in verse 73 that we also heard when it says that all Israel was dwelling in their towns. Now think about that for a minute. The Bible calls this group the remnant. You know what a remnant is. It's it's not much, right? 
This is the remnant. And we hear their number, 42,360 people. That is a small number compared to their old days of glory. But these people who came back, they don't have an inferiority complex. They don't go around saying, well, we're only a small group of God's people. Maybe we should only expect a small portion of God's blessing and favor. No, spiritually, they represented the full people of God. And God was pleased to give them his full blessing. It's good news that God cares about small groups of Christians, right? We saw that already in 1 Peter. If you recall what we looked at in 1 Peter, he was writing to a small group of scattered Christians in the rural zones of the Roman Empire, but he says to them, you are the church. God's spirit dwells in you. You are being built up into the body of Christ. Now, this doesn't, of course, remove our need for the global body of Christ. Absolutely not. We still need our brothers and sisters throughout the world. This is not about being exclusive to say that we or the people in the remnant are the full people of God. No, it's not saying that. It just means that we should expect God's full blessing, his fullest, richest blessing regardless of our size. A great temptation in our area, and I think many areas across the country, is to judge a church based on its size. And it's important to remember that church size is not a barrier to experience God's blessing, God's word, God's spirit, the presence of Christ. Like Jesus said, where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. So this remnant enjoyed God's blessing. In the New Testament, small household churches enjoyed God's blessing. And at CCA, too, in times like this, when we're just trying to regather, when we're sorting out where we're going to be worshiping, maybe even worshiping at home, we can feel that we are very small, but we, too, can enjoy God's blessing. Size is not a barrier. And neither is ethnicity. It's a multi-ethnic people that we read in the text who've come back as God's people. If we were to look more closely at verses 46 through 56, this was the list of temple servants that you might remember me summarizing. This list includes several names that seem to be of non-Israelite origin. They are included in the roles of Israel. In two weeks, we're going to be looking at the ways that Israel co-mingled in wrong ways with the nations, but here is a fantastic example of Gentile converts being included in Old Testament Israel. If we were to look back in the book of Ezra at chapter 6, verse 21, we would see a similar thing. Gentile converts included within God's people. Here's what it's talking about. It's talking about the celebration of the Passover, and it says that it was eaten by the people of Israel who had returned from exile and also by everyone who had joined them and separated himself from the uncleanness of the peoples of the land to worship the Lord, the God of Israel. The Old Testament envisions a multi-ethnic people of God, and this becomes only more clear in the New Testament. So just like group size is not a barrier for experiencing God's blessing, neither is ethnicity. 
People of all ethnicities are welcomed into God's people to fully enjoy his presence. Also, as we look at this list, we see in God's people some unexpected people. Verses 61 through 62 that we read, they name people from a few regions who, quoting the text, could not prove their father's houses nor their descent whether they belonged to Israel. So, to understand what's going on, groups of people are coming back from exile to repopulate Israel and Jerusalem after their exile. So that, that's what's happening. And, and some people, these particular families that show up, they, they can't prove their status. The, the people who were trying to figure out where all the people were going to live according to their ancestral genealogy, they're looking at the roles and they're looking at the people, and these people cannot prove their credentials to be a part of this repopulating group. But what happens to this group of people that can't prove their status? Well, they're let in. It's kind of an unexpected thing. They are let in. They are included in the roles of Israel. They're allowed to repopulate. They're allowed to help with the work on the temple. They are allowed to partake of the Passover together. They're treated like full citizens, even when they don't have the credentials to prove it. And there's a lesson in here for us. Sometimes there are unexpected people in the church. Maybe someone who's rough around the edges. Maybe someone who's a new convert and doesn't know any of our religious or theological language. What does it take to belong here? Does it take a certain level of pedigree or credentialing? No, it shouldn't. It shouldn't take any particular knowledge or language or cultural or level of piety. It's our identity as God's people that marks us as, God, as the people of God. It's our identity that brings us together. This is our shared salvation that we have in Christ. And so if you confess Christ as your Savior, then please know you are welcome here. Regardless of size, ethnicity, or insider knowledge, we are God's people. We're free to experience God's richest blessing in Christ. And let's pause for a moment before we move on and just savor that for a little bit. Isn't this a wonderful picture of our God who is pleased to welcome us regardless of all the external measures of success or meaning that we tend to cling to for our identity? I think one of the best parts of being a Christian is knowing that the core of our identity is that we are loved by God. That's what brings us together. That's what makes us have meaning in life. You are loved by God. We're his people. This is our common identity. And we have a common purpose. Here's our common purpose. Building God's house. Verses 70 through 72 describe the people's offering. It's the verses about money, the gold, the silver, the priestly garments that the people were bringing. These were the offerings that this first generation of post-exilic returnees, it's the offerings that they brought to rebuild the temple. Remember, this was their work. Nehemiah worked on the wall, but before the wall, the people before him needed to rebuild the temple that had been destroyed. And this was their common purpose, to build God's house. 
And pay attention to the spirit of giving. It was spontaneous, as we hear it in the scriptures. It wasn't a tax. It wasn't something that the leadership mandated. They, they made these people give all of this stuff, all of this money. It was spontaneous, and it was generous. When we hear about all of the gold and the silver and the garments that were brought, it's a lot. It was a lot of generosity that the people gave. These were luxurious offerings, and it was specific to each individual giver. There's a note in Ezra's version of this in chapter 2 that says that the people gave according to their ability. I think that's a lovely, lovely idea that not only is it generous, but it's generous according to the individual capabilities of the people. And, And all this shows us is that generosity really is in the eyes of God. This simply confirms the gracious picture of God that we just paused to savor. The Lord knows the heart and he knows your budget. And whether a gift is big or small in the world's eyes is irrelevant. We might think in the New Testament of the widow's two copper coins. The rich would scoff at her giving these two simple coins. But Jesus praises it as a most lavish gift that, he, that, the, that she gives. Jesus is happy to receive gifts that in the world's eyes are quite humble. He exalts these offerings He knows that they are based in gratitude. They're meant for worship. And this, as we, I think when we look at the text, it's what motivated their giving. These people who were giving uh, spontaneously, generously, and according to their ability, it's because they were grateful to God. They were back at home in their land, and they wanted to express their gratitude by giving generously to building God's house as an act of worship. It's it's like this in the New Testament, too, if we were to look at how God's people give according to their purpose. It's the, the same thing. Of course, God's house in the New Testament isn't the temple building anymore. It's the church. But if we scoured the New Testament, we would see the same thing. The people gave to the church with the same spirit, the same purpose, the same zeal to build God's house. Barnabas in Acts chapter 4 is a good example of this, out of gratitude for the gospel, gratitude for the mercy that he has been shown in Christ. He sells a field and gives the money to the church for the work of the ministry. This, according to the book of Acts, it's a spontaneous, generous gift, but it's according to his unique capabilities, his giftings, and other people aren't expected to do the same thing. So how can we exercise our common purpose? How can we build God's house? Sure, financial generosity is part of it, of course. Uh, Giving to the church to support the ministry, giving to the deacons to support the work of mercy, that's part of building God's house. But more than that, please hear me say more than simply money when we use our gifts of service to encourage or teach or bless the church, building up the body of Christ. This is building God's house. And when we share the gospel with our neighbors, with our friends, helping to bring more people into the body of Christ, it's building God's house. It's our common purpose. Proclaiming Christ, serving in Christ's name. And Jesus is happy to receive our gifts. 
according to all of our capabilities. We all have a variety of different gifts, and he is happy to receive all of our gifts and our various strengths. And this focus on Jesus then leads us to the final piece that we have in common. We have a common identity, a common purpose, and we have common leadership. Nehemiah chapter 7 shows us the three types of leaders that God's people need. And we hear about it in verse 7. Verse 7 mentions Zerubbabel, the king. It mentions Jeshua, the priest. Interestingly, in the list of names, there are no prophets listed, but there's clearly a need for one. In verse 65, it says that they need a priest who can specifically inquire about God's will. They're looking for a priest who can also speak like a prophet. These are the leaders that we need. We need a king. Someone to lead in righteousness and protect them. And when God's people don't have a king, the people go astray. And they're overrun by their enemies. God's people need a priest. They need someone to represent them before God, to offer sacrifices, to restore their relationship with God. And when they don't have a priest, there's no way for them to have peace with God restored. And God's people need a prophet. They need someone to speak for God authoritatively, giving divine revelation. And when they don't have a prophet, they don't know God's will. They don't hear God's voice. So prophet, priest, king. These are our needs. And in this way, Nehemiah chapter 7 points directly to Jesus. As we confessed already in our confession of faith, Jesus is our prophet, priest, and king. He is our prophet. He is the revealed, final, and authoritative word of God. He is the true message of salvation. He's our prophet. He's our priest. Jesus makes peace with God for us by offering himself in our place once for all. This is the great news of the gospel. We have a high priest who makes intercession for us and makes peace with God on our behalf. We have a priest. It's Jesus. Jesus is our priest and Jesus is our king. He protects us and he leads us in righteousness forever. And the great news in all of this, is that in Jesus, not only do we have the leadership that we need to thrive, again, this is the leadership that we need spiritually, prophet, priest, and king, not only does Jesus give us this, but he gives us these things, prophet, priest, and king, forever. In Jesus, we have an eternal prophet, priest, and king. And we don't have to endure another leadership change ever again. When you look at the Old Testament, it's these leadership changes. The change in regime that usually brings about problems. A good king dies and a bad king comes in his place and God's people fall apart. We don't have that risk anymore. We have an eternal prophet, priest, and king. An eternal leadership. And he leads us. As a community, Jesus is our common leadership. We gather every Sunday to be led by Jesus, to hear from Jesus, to be led by him together, to celebrate the reconciliation that we have through him. This is what we have in common, brothers and sisters. We have a common identity as God's people, experiencing the fullness of his blessing 
We have a common purpose, building God's house as we freely and generously use our particular gifts according to our particular abilities, speaking and serving in Christ's name. And we have a common leadership, Jesus, our prophet, priest, and king. So take up these things, these shared pieces of our journey together, uh, the things that glue us together as a community to overcome the reunion blues that we may experience in divided times. We spend so much time in our culture focusing on the things that separate us from other people. My newsfeed every single day is filled with things that are divisive. We're just constantly surrounded by division. And it may sound trite. I recognize this might sound just like kind of a, a spiritual trite saying, but Jesus gives us someone to gather around, someone to unite us together. We need to focus on what we have in common as we enjoy our Christian fellowship. Now, there are two challenges to this. Two challenges for us to try and enjoy our unity in Christ. The first thing is figuring out how to remain united while also holding to our individual, political, cultural viewpoints in a divided age, right? The church is united around Christ, not one particular political ideology. And it's always a problem when the church becomes kind of just a club for people who think the same about life in general. That's not what we are united around. We need to be a place where people of all kinds of viewpoints are welcomed together to enjoy fellowship in Christ as the one who unites us. That's the first problem. And the second challenge is figuring out how to remain united when we're a congregation that's separated because of health concerns. We have some people here. We have others who are worshiping with us at home. So these are the two challenges that we face as we look at community, two of the things that kind of foster this idea of reunion blues. And I think that there's at least an answer, or at least a way that we can work on some of these challenges together. Here's the way. It's to have real relationships with each other. Real relationships with each other will help us to overcome these two challenges. So just like last week, I, I have a particular pastoral challenge for us. Pursue a real relationship with someone in the church this week. That's the, that's the if you want kind of an application homework, that's it. Pursue a real relationship with someone in the church this week. And we can connect it to last week's sermon on prayer when we talked about how God works through prayer. So here's how I, my encouragement to you. Uh, pray this day, maybe tomorrow, early in the week, pray about who God might be pointing you to. Ask God specifically to put someone on your mind, someone on your heart for you to reach out to. And I think God will be very happy to answer that. And I don't know if you pray about those things, uh, those type of things. Maybe it seems kind of beneath uh, your prayer life or maybe beneath God to stoop down and answer a simple prayer like that. But it's not. God is happy to answer simple requests like this. So pray. 
Who might God be inviting you to reach out to? And after God answers that, when he puts someone on your mind and your heart, then call that person. And if you need their phone number, you can call us at the church and we'll try and connect you. Happy to try and make that connection. Now, as you're praying about it, here are some people that might come to your mind. It might be a close friend in the church, or it might be someone that you feel like you need to clear the air with, or it might be someone that you know is hurting. It might be someone unexpected, someone that you don't know very well. It might be your shepherding elder. Maybe you want to call your shepherding elder to check in on them, see how they're doing. It might be me. It might be Jimmy. God will guide you. And in these calls, when you make the call, pursue the relationship. Ask how they're doing. And most importantly, focus on what you have in common Ask where they are growing in Christ. Ask where God is at work in their life. And after you've talked about what you have in common, pray together on the phone. Prayer is especially unifying. It is an amazing experience to pray with another believer. So, so that's the three things this week. If, again, if you want some homework, pray, call, and pray together. That's how we can exercise our, common, uh, our commonality as a community. If we do this, if we as a church uh, intentionally stay in relationship with each other, it will go a long way to help us rediscover who we're with in this journey. Community helps us overcome reunion blues. I told you last week, that I tended to experience these reunion blues, uh, especially at the beginning of my Christmas vacations when I was traveling back home in college. During my sophomore year, that fall, I had had a semester that was filled with a ton of change. I had changed majors from uh, religion to social work to escape some of the divisions that were in the religion department at that time. And also I had this growing uh, conviction about the church's social responsibility, felt like social work was the best place for me to be. Also, God had been working in my heart for a while, and, and after a lot of wrestling, I had come to some different theological convictions than most of the people that I knew at the school and especially most of the people that I knew back at home. And so when I returned home for this particular Christmas vacation, I felt so out of place. It was, it was probably the hardest re-entry that I, I experienced during those four years of college. I felt so awkward around my family, around my friends, because I didn't know how to talk about some of these changes in my life. And one evening, I think it was on a Christmas Eve, uh, a friend and I took a late-night trip to Waffle House. And that's a cultural experience that you should have at some point in time. Find a Waffle House. They're not really around here. Uh, But we went to Waffle House to catch up, and we wanted to leave a big tip for the employees that were working there on that special night. And we had an amazing conversation. It turned out that my friend had been on a very similar trajectory as me, similar convictions, similar theological growth and changes. And so in that conversation, we were able to really talk about how we were doing We were able to connect on a very deep level and and wrestle with how we were then going to relate to our friends and our family back at home. And in that moment, I remember feeling this wonderful sense of relief. I remember thinking, I am not alone. This is such good news. And in this, I had a friend to help me navigate the continued relationships and community together. This conversation helped me overcome my reunion blues. Brothers and sisters, we have so much in common. 
And we have so much for us to celebrate. We have our God. Our God who welcomes us as his people. He welcomes our offerings. He's happy to give us the leadership that we need. And he's happy to provide us a group of people to journey with. And so please reach out to each other this week so that we can celebrate the one whom we have in common, Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the good news of community that arises from this challenging text. Press deep into our hearts the picture of your loveliness that comes from it, the great gospel of reconciliation that we have, and the gospel that teaches us as well that we are reconciled with each other here in this church. Give us what we need in the coming days and weeks. Strengthen us as a community, and then let us be a community that's committed to also building your house as we reach out to others. Bless us, we pray, in the light of Christ this week as we seek to live faithfully according to this message. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.